Throughout this epistle, James has issued a series of commands for scattered and struggling saints. His commands have primarily focused on the practical application of the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8 In particular, he has focused on three areas where the royal law must be applied. Controlling one's tongue, caring for the helpless, and constraining oneself from worldliness. James 1.27 Now in James 5.12-17, James pens the closing of this letter. The closing is unusual as it does not include any greetings, plans, or benedictions typical of New Testament epistles. While unusual, James uses his closure to announce three final commands dealing with three crucial issues. Taking frivolous vows in chapter 5 verse 12, praying for one another's needs in 5 13 to 18, and teaching sinning believers chapter 5 19 to 20. These three crucial issues form the 22nd triad of James' epistle. While these issues may seem unrelated, they relate to a much larger issue that James has addressed throughout the letter, the use of one's speech. Believers are to bridle or control their tongue, James 1.26. Through God's enablement, believers who control their tongue will control their whole body, James 3.2. Uncontrolled tongues are full of deadly poison, defile the body, and destroy others, James 3, 5, 6, and 8. As well, believers are not to speak against others, i.e. malign, disparage, gossip, or criticize, or condemn others, i.e. murmur wickedly, as we have seen in James 4.11 and James 5.9. While James' conclusory commands relate to the central theme of one's speech, verse 12, in a sense, stands on its own. Verse 13 through 17 are commands about speech that involve others. Here, however, in verse 12, the command, do not swear, concerns one's integrity. Integrity is an unyielding adherence to a moral code and the quality of being honest. Again, integrity is an unyielding adherence to a moral code and the quality of being honest. Scripture speaks much to the issue of integrity. Yahweh said of Job that he was a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity. Job 2.3 Defending himself before his accusatory friends, Job declared, Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. Job 27, verse 5. Now the word integrity there, tumah, derives from the Hebrew term tamam, describing a sacrificial animal as being without blemish or spot. Another derivative of tamam is tamim, which is used in the book of Job to describe God and his word. Job 36 verse 4 says, For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. The word perfect there is the word tamim. Job 37 16, Do you know about the layers of the thick clouds, the wonders of one perfect tamim in knowledge? Now by studying these derivatives of tumah, the expositor gets a more complete picture of Job's integrity. That Job was Tumah implies that he was a morally upright and honest person, i.e., a man of integrity. Now, Psalm 101 
provides eight characteristics of a person of integrity. Psalm 101. A person of integrity loves the Lord's mercy and justice. Psalm 101 verse 1. I will sing of loving kindness and justice. A person of integrity lives a blameless life. Psalm 101 verse 2. I will give heed to the blameless way. I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. A person of integrity does not look at evil things. Psalm 101 verse 3. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. A person of integrity does not pursue perverse things. Psalm 101 verse 4. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. A person of integrity does not slander, gossip, or boast. Psalm 101 5. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. A person of integrity pursues fellowship with and wisdom from those faithful to God. Psalm 101 verse 6. My eyes shall be upon the faithful, the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who, they, who will minister to me. A person of integrity forsakes deceit and dishonesty. Psalm 101.7 He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. And a person of integrity confronts those who have morally objectionable behavior. Psalm 101 verse 8 Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land, so as to cut off from the city of the Lord all those who do iniquity. Now we need to pause here and consider whether or not we are people of integrity. Do you love the Lord's mercy and justice? Do you live a blameless life? Do you not look at evil things? Do you not pursue perverse things? Do you not slander, gossip, or boast? Do you pursue fellowship with and wisdom from those faithful to God? Do you forsake deceit and dishonesty? And are you willing to confront those who have morally objectionable behavior? Don't tell someone, don't, don't fool yourself even to think you're a person of integrity if you cannot answer yes to these eight statements. Consider your ways. Now without a doubt, when James issues a command against swearing or frivolous oaths as a follow-up to his command not to speak against others and not to complain others, he adopts Psalm 15, verse 2 to 5. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbors, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. But who honors those who fear the Lord, he swears to his own heart and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Note the similarity of themes between James' epistle and Psalm 15, 2-5. Speaking truth, not slandering, keeping oaths, not defrauding others, and using money well. Thus, in verse 12, James addresses the issue of the power of integrity. Personal integrity is essential because it dictates one's words and it determines one's judgment. Again, 
the power of integrity. It's powerful because it dictates one's word and determines one's judgment. Let's begin in verse 5, or chapter 5, and the first part of verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Now, integrity is powerful. Why? Because it dictates one's words. Integrity dictates one's word. James again addresses his readers here as my brethren. His commands are given out of love and concern for his fellow believers. By referring to them as brethren, James places himself upon an equal footing with them. Hence, what he says to them, he applies to himself. He begins with the phrase, above all, pantande. Some have argued that this phrase is purely functional or functionary to denote the close of the letter. However, the phrase is not used in any other New Testament epistle to initiate the closing remarks. A close parallel is used in 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, pantande, keep fervent in your love for one another. Now there in 1 Peter 4, the phrase above all, pantande, implied something of utmost importance. Hence it is highly probable that James uses the phrase in the same way. Thus, the command, do not swear, is of utmost importance. Now how is that command more significant than all the other commands contained in James' epistle? Do not all of James' commands stem from the royal law to love one's neighbor, as found in Leviticus 19.18? What could be greater than the command to love one another? Consideration must be given as to James' source text in order to answer the question. Much of James has been sourced from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. By examining that sermon, it is evident that James is directly quoting Matthew 5, 33-37. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes, yes, or no, no, anything beyond these is of evil. Now grammatically, the command, do not swear, me amnuta, is identical to Jesus' command, Make no oath, me omasai. The word swear, amnuo, does not refer to foul language, but to confirming a statement's truthfulness with an oath, promise, or vow. In particular, these people, the Pharisees, were confirming the truthfulness of their statements by swearing either by heaven, or earth, or Jerusalem, or the hair on their head. Furthermore, Jesus' command to not swear or take an oath cannot be interpreted as an injunction against all oath-taking. Before issuing his command, Christ quoted God's law on oaths. You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. In the context 
of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Matthew 5, 17. In other words, Jesus could not alter, amend, or annul God's law. Deuteronomy 4.2 You shall not add to the words which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandment of the Lord your God which I command you. And that command is repeated again in Deuteronomy 12.32, Proverbs 30 verse 6, and Revelation 22 and verse 18. Any such attempt to alter God's law would make Jesus a sinner and not the sinless Savior. Hence, his command against taking oaths was not an alteration amendment or annulment against God's law on oaths. Now, the specific law on oaths is found in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, and Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 23. Numbers 30, verse 2 says, If a man makes a vow to the Lord, or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, 21-23 says, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be a sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be a sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. The law did not forbid oaths, but instead regulated them. God required that any oath taken was to be irrevocable and to be fulfilled. Furthermore, God commanded that when his people take an oath, they were to swear by his name and not by the names of pagan gods. Deuteronomy 10.20, You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. Joshua 23, verse 7, So that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. You see, the specific invocation of God's name in an oath was, As the Lord lives. Jeremiah 12.16 then if they will really learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, quote, as the Lord lives. So to swear an oath by Yahweh's name was to declare one's loyalty to him and commitment to keep one's oath. Whenever believers make an oath, they must remember that, that you're ultimately making it to the Lord. Thus you are bound to keep that which you have promised to do. So what then was the purpose of Jesus' command? Remember, the Pharisees had added loopholes to God's law. They would invoke carefully worded oaths that they could legally reverse. And therefore, Jesus sought to close any supposed loopholes. The phrase, either by heaven or by earth, as used in James, provides two of these loopholes. As well... The phrase in James 5.12, or with any other oaths, literally another oath of the same kind, refers to the two other loopholes referred to in Matthew 5.33-36. By Jerusalem and by one's head. Remember, the law states, if a man makes a vow to the Lord, 
The Pharisees rationalized that by vowing according to heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or their own head, they could legally break their vows and not be guilty before the Lord. To the Pharisees, these oaths were frivolous, and they had no intention of keeping them. Now, the problem with their rationale was that it was short-sighted. Consider Jesus' explanation in Matthew 5, 31, or 35 to 36. See, in reality, heaven is the throne of God, and the earth is the footstool of his feet. This is a quote from Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. As well, Jerusalem is the city of the great king. A quote from Psalm 48, verse 2. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Thus, swearing by heaven, earth, or Jerusalem is ultimately swearing an oath by the Lord. It is also foolish to make an oath upon one's head because no one can naturally will their hair white or black. Such an action would be miraculous and therefore only something God can do. Now, while the Pharisees believed that guaranteeing their oaths with these things relieved them of violating God's oath law, they were indeed guilty of violating the command against taking God's name in vain. Again, the reason for swearing by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and their own head was to provide them a legal loophole to break their oath later. They failed to realize that all things ultimately belong to God. As such, Leviticus 19.11 says, You shall not swear falsely by my name. Guaranteeing an oath by anything that ultimately belongs to the Lord and then to break it later is equivalent to swearing falsely by Yahweh's name. Leviticus 19.11b says, So as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Hence, to swear falsely by God's name is to violate the fourth commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Exodus 20 verse 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus affirmed the sacredness of God's name when he taught believers how to pray. Matthew 6 9. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed or sacred be your name. So to answer the question, what could possibly be greater than the commands to love one another is simply the commands to love God. You see, the first four commandments are summed up in Deuteronomy 6.5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The last six commandments are summed up in Leviticus 19.18. You shall love the na- your neighbor as yourself. When asked what was the greatest commandment, Jesus replied in Matthew 25.37-38, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. By quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, the summation of the first four commandments, Jesus declared them to be foremost or of most importance. Thus, James states that the command against oaths is above all because violating the command not to take frivolous oaths is actually a violation of the command to love God, not profane his name. 
You see, Jesus is not forbidding all oath-taking. But did not Jesus say in Matthew 5, 34, make no oath at all? Yes. But Jesus is not referring to formal or solemn oaths. He is forbidding frivolous oaths. Of such oaths, the Pharisees were guilty. Again, the phrase, or with any other oath in James 5.12, literally translates as another oath of the same kind and refers to any other oath that is uttered frivolously. See, God himself uttered oaths to guarantee the fulfillment of what he promises. Hebrews 3.11 and 18, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And to whom did he swear that he would not enter into his rest? But to those who were disobedient. Hebrews chapter 6, 13 and 16. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21 to 22. For they indeed became priests without an oath. But he with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. That God issues oaths demonstrates that oath-taking is not evil. God is a God of integrity, and his words are dictated by that integrity. Therefore, what he says he will do. During his trial, Jesus answered questions under oath. Matthew 26, 63-64. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Additionally, Paul frequently invoked oaths to reinforce the truth or the truthfulness of his message. Romans 1, 9. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness. As to how unceasingly I make mention of you. 2 Corinthians 1.23 I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. Galatians 1.20 Now in what I am writing to you I assure you before God that I am not lying. Philippians 1.8 For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 2.5 and 10 for we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers. If Jesus forbids all oaths, then God is in violation. Paul is in violation, and Jesus himself is in violation. If they all violated the command, what does that say to the integrity of the New Testament? Obviously then, the command make not an oath at all does not apply to every kind of oath, but to those that are frivolous. Let's also ask this question. Does the command against oaths apply to courts of law? No. The command against oath-taking does not forbid oaths in a court of law. As demonstrated, Jesus answered his accusers under oath in court, Matthew 26. Paul also states in Hebrews 6.16 that men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end in every dispute. That he uses the example of a courtroom oath-taking as an example of those oaths issued by God 
and that there's no condemnation of such an act demonstrates that courtroom oaths are not prohibited. There is nothing in the context of Matthew 5, 33-37 or James 5, 12 that supports that frivolous oaths were being used in judicial proceedings. Again, the prohib- prohibition is against frivolous oaths uttered by those with no intention of keeping them. How often do you, believer, utter such frivolous oaths when facing some difficult situation? How many of you have prayed, Lord, if you do this or that, I will do this or that? Such promises, friends, or oaths are frivolous. You made these promises or oath because your circumstances were overwhelming. And soon after the circumstances have changed, you forgot and broke the oath. Another point that must be considered regarding frivolous oaths is that it is sometimes necessary to break the oath and repent. If you've taken a frivolous oath, it may be necessary to break that oath and repent. Listen very carefully. Sometimes frivolous oaths are made out of pride. Consider Herod, who swore to the daughter of Herodias that he would give her anything for her dancing. You can cross-reference this, Mark 6, 23-26. When she asked for John the Baptist to be murdered, Herod felt horrible, but out of pride, not wanting to look bad before his guest, he had John murdered. Sometimes, frivolous oaths are made out of foolishness. Consider Jephthah, who vowed to sacrifice the first thing that walked out the door when he returned from war. Upon returning from home, his daughter was the first to walk out the door to greet him. Foolishly, Jephthah kept the vow and killed his daughter. Judges 11, 30-39. In both examples, frivolous oaths were made. When these oaths required the murder of an innocent person, it placed both Herod and Jephthah in a moral quandary. God's law required that oaths be kept, but also banned the murder of innocent people. In this situation, both men should have chosen to break their vows rather than murder an innocent person. In keeping their vow, an innocent life was lost, and they became guilty of murder. In breaking their vow, they would be guilty of profaning God's name, but an innocent life would be preserved. Either choice would make them guilty of violating God's law. But they were morally obligated to protect an innocent life because human life is made in God's image. Believers, if you have made frivolous oaths, you should keep them. But if keeping them would lead to another sin, then break that frivolous vow and repent. Again, let's look at James 5.12. But your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. My friends, integrity is powerful not only because it dictates your words, but also dictates your judgment. Integrity dictates one's judgment. James continues to quote from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, your yes is to be yes and your no, no. This phrase is a Hebraism that invokes the idea of an outward or verbal yes should also be an inward yes. 
So if it's outward, it should reflect what's inward. The logic behind the phrase is based upon the law of fair trade in Leviticus 19, 35 to 36. You shall do no wrong in judgment in measurements of weights or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, or a just hand. Now, fair trade is based upon the truthfulness of the vendor. Under God's law, a vendor whose wares depend on weight has vowed to be honest in the transaction. They are vowing or taking an oath that their scales are balanced and their weights are just. Furthermore, Scripture states that dishonesty in trade is an abomination before the Lord. Deuteronomy 25, 13-16 You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord your God. You can cross-reference that to Proverbs 11.1, 1, Proverbs 20.10, and Proverbs 20.23. 20, Oaths made to cover falsehood can be classified as insincere or false. False oaths are abominable because they violate the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, Exodus 20.16. In the phrase, your yes is to be yes, the verb is to be, a me, is imperative. Hence, a literal rendering of the phrase would state that a believer's yes must genuinely be a yes, and their no must genuinely be a no. The issue here is one of truthfulness. Yes does not mean no, and no does not mean yes. Therefore, as believers, we should say what we mean and mean what we say. Anything less than truthfulness and oath-taking is abominable before the Lord and sets you up for judgment. Now, whereas the first half of verse 12 prohibited frivolous oaths, the back half then prohibits false oaths or oaths made to avoid truthfulness. Again, the actions of the Pharisees underlie this admonition. In Matthew 23, 16-22, Jesus confronted the Pharisees. He said, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar that sacrifices the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. These Pharisees were deceptive in that they uttered oaths to give an impression of truthfulness. They claimed that oaths sworn according to the temple of the altar meant nothing. That is, they had no plans to keep the oath. They simply used the oath to cover their deceptiveness. However, had they sworn by the gold or the, uh, of, in the temple or the gift on the altar, that would have been binding. They would have kept those oaths. Jesus explains that the gold and the, uh, uh, and the gift were not more important than the temple or the altar. Whether they swore by the temple, the altar, the gold, or the gift, they were obligated to keep their oath. Because of their deceptiveness, Jesus announced 
prophetic judgment upon them. Woe. The prophetic woe, oracle, was a pronouncement of judgment against sin. Thus, it is a sin to make a false oath. Now, these woe judgments or these woe oracles developed from the curses found in God's law. Deuteronomy 27, 15 and 26. Cursed or woe is the man who makes an idol or a molten image. Cursed is he who dishonors his father and mother. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary north. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due to an alien orphan and widow. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife. Cursed is he who lies with any animal. Cursed is he who lies with his sister. Cursed is he who lies with his mother-in-law. Cursed is he who strikes his neighbor in secret. Cursed is he who accepts a bride to strike down an innocent person. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Now typically, a woe oracle would follow a four-step pattern. And you can cross-reference this to Micah 2, 1 to 3, as well as Isaiah 5, Amos 6, and Habakkuk 2. First, the woe or judgment is announced. Second, the person upon whom the woe is announced is described. Third, the charges or reason for the woe are given. And fourth, the punishment for the crime is announced. So in Matthew 23, 16 to 22, Jesus announced a woe or judgment against the Pharisees. He described them as blind guides. Then he delivered the charges against them. And finally, he announced their punishment in Matthew 23, 33. How will you escape the sentence of hell? You see, in that context, Jesus charged them with deceit by giving themselves wiggle room to weasel out of their oaths. And their judgment was eternal punishment in the lake of fire. Because they lacked integrity or truthfulness in their oath-taking, they were judged and sentenced to eternal punishment in the lake of fire. That means, my friends, that we should not word things in a manner that leaves wiggle room to weasel out of our responsibilities later. We should be known for honest speech. We should say what we mean and mean what we say. And furthermore, we should have no reason, especially with one another, to invoke an oath to guarantee the truthfulness of what we are saying. Sadly, like Peter, too many believers lack integrity and try to make their deception appear truthful. Listen to Matthew 26, 71 to 72. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know that man. Friend, if you are guilty of using oaths, to cover your deception, you need to follow Peter's example and repent. Break that oath and repent. See, my friends, like the Pharisees, if you lack integrity in your speech or you make oaths deceptively, you're going to face judgment. Hence, James warning, your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. That verb fall, pipto, means to enter into a particular state or condition. It's in the subjunctive mood denoting something that's intentional. In other words, if you vow deceptive oaths, you are intentionally entering into judgment. It's not a case of possibly being judged. Your judgment is determined and definite. Now the term judgment here, crisis, or crisis as we would say, 
denotes a legal decision rendered in a criminal case resulting in punishment. Indeed, as Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36, every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Friends, we will stand before the judge and give an account of not only our deeds, but our words. According to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will give an account for every deed done, whether good or evil. Now, Christ's death and resurrection removed the death penalty for sin. And we should rejoice that our sins are forgiven, and we will never spend a moment in the lake of fire. However, at the Bema seat, Jesus will weigh every work and word we have said and done on his scale of justice. Frivolous and false oaths will not fall on the plus side of the scale. They will fall on the side of the scale that will be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. Those oaths are costly because they will result in a loss of heavenly reward. Friends, God's law does not prohibit oaths, but does demand integrity in making and keeping them. We must be known for our integrity. George Stolich wisely admonished us regarding our integrity. He said this, Do not try to impress each other or to manipulate God as if your works were counted instead of God's grace. If you are trusting in God's grace, you have no need to impress God or people. And you can be at peace with saying honest words. Integrity should characterize Christians, and integrity will flow from wholehearted reliance on grace. Anyone who breaks an oath ultimately dishonors God unless it's been necessary to break that oath. To invoke God's name in an oath, and then not to keep that oath is to profane his name. To make an oath frivolously or with no intention of keeping it, or to make an oath to make a lie appear truthful, is to commit an abomination before the Lord. God views frivolous and false oaths as abominable. They are abominable because they ultimately violate the third and ninth commandments. And each action makes you liable before the heavenly judge. Before making any promise, any vow, or any oath, or any covenant, consider the words of Ecclesiastes 5.5. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I thank and praise you, Lord, for this challenge to us regarding our integrity. That, Father, as we look at the power of integrity, Father, it ought to dictate our words, but it also dictates our judgments. What we say will be judged, whether it's good or evil. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to be people of integrity. That, Lord, you might help us to be people who say what we mean and mean what we say. That, Father, I pray that if someone here has taken a frivolous oath, that, Father, preventure they would keep it, lest it would lead them to commit another sin. If that's the case, Father, I pray that, Lord, they might break that frivolous oath, take the judgment that comes, and repent. Father, if someone here has made a false oath, then, Lord, I pray that they would break that false oath and repent and take the punishment that comes. Better to take the punishment in this life than the loss of reward in the next. And so, Father, I pray to that end that you'd help us once again to be men and women of integrity in what we say and do. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.